guys, welcome to the Paddler's Playbook. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Podcast Land. Thermal convection, man. These dudes almost killed me. You know, redfish are really dumb. How do you take your marsh dump? This fool used all my toilet paper. Bro, Well, now that Drew's done dragging this on. TPP15. You gonna get a dozen shrimp? Hey, you throwing that cast net again this weekend? Oh, good lord. I almost died. I do not want to paddle that far. Once again, he almost died. <laughs> I'm not waking up at the butt crack of dawn. I'll see you at the launch around noon. I love wake baits. Haven't you ever heard them chatter? Let me double back here for a second. And now, a word from Saltside Jess. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the paddle. Check out our sponsors. No, like, check out our sponsors. Check out our sponsors. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Podcast Land. I'm your host, Drew Turner. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Lewis, and we are live from the Bait Butler Studio. Chris, I'm I'm looking at the video here. I see. Is there some progress going on with the house, man? I know. I know you're doing this (laughs) remodel. Is there some progress going? No, no, not not on the inside of the house at all. Um, But we did have. For the past week, we've had somebody out here um, trimming the trees. You know, we've got dozens of hundred-year-old oak trees, and they haven't been manicured in probably, um, I would say, 15 years. So they were due um, for some yeah, manicuring. Those live oaks, man, you got to keep them. You got to do some maintenance on them or those limbs will snap really quickly. And, and, and those are un- some beautiful trees, man. I love some of my favorite trees. If they, if they would have taken care of them a little bit better, they would have bloomed a lot differently. So now we just got to try and keep the maintenance going to try and get that bloom back. Um, but no, I actually had some time last weekend to do something that I haven't done three times this whole entire year, man. I went fishing on Saturday. Yeah. You got out on the Poland skiff, didn't you? We got out on the Poland skiff, went to one of my favorite little spots here in Galveston Bay, um, took our friend Nathan Norton out, um, got him up on the deck, and the entire day, which was, as far as the Salooner goes, was a low-activity day. Remember, um, remember that, guys. We're going to yeah. talk about it in the episode here was a low activity day on the Salooner calendar, but um, we did get some fish to bite. Um, and you know what, Drew? I did notice on the way out, guess what was laying down? The cows. The cows, the cows were, laying, were down. laying down. Yes, sir, they <laughs> surely were. But I did, wasn't going to let that stop me from a fishing trip. I won't let anything pretty much stop me from a fishing If I'm out on the water or going out on the water and I see something that looks a little whack, the only thing that's going to keep me from going on the water is heavy lightning. If it's lightning, I'm not going. Um, but we had a pretty good day. In fact, we had a lot of different shorelines. We saw one of the largest schools of redfish that either one of us have seen in a very long time. I think In the Nathan, middle of the summer? Yes. Yeah. And... The, there is, uh, in this lake, in this area, that school is known to be there, okay? I've seen it twice since I've been fishing back in that area. And both times that I have seen it, Drew, I have not been able to pull a fish out of it. 
There. What's been the issue with with pulling fish out of it? You just you think that they they they've been around the block a few times or what? Dude, I don't know what it is, but they move fast. First of all, they are probably one. It's the probably the fastest moving school of redfish I've ever seen. Uh, number one. Number two, um, they am- only ambush certain areas. I'm pretty sure they're overs. Okay, I'm pretty sure they're very large redfish. Um, and they only ambush certain areas. So when we see the school, um, they're, they're circling bait when we first see them. And then we don't know when and where they're going to actually ambush that bait. So I've made it a point that whenever I see that school, I stick around and try and find out what the pattern is. But they are so friggin' fast that once they ambush that bait, they freaking take off and move to a different area. It is the wildest thing that I've ever seen, and they pro- that's probably why they've been able to maintain their their presence for so long in that lake because they're not getting caught. They're just moving way, way too fast. Dude. Now, you're talking about you guys saw a whole lot of redfish. Redfish is something we talk about a lot during this show. I don't think we give enough love to trout. Well, I know that we we've don't never given. We've talked love about flounder, trout. guys. We've yes, talked so. about flounder. We've talked about redfish. We've talked about bass more than we've talked about trout. But that's going to change today. That is changing in this episode because we had Clint Bargy on to talk with us about summertime trout fishing. And I have to say, I felt kind of like an idiot during this episode because I'd ask a question. He's like, well, that's easy. You just go blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, that's not easy because I had no freaking clue that that's where you were supposed to be. So there was definitely a lot of knowledge dropped in this episode for those of us that do not target trout very often. And I'm glad that we could have somebody on that could talk about targeting trout from a kayak because I I think sometimes targeting trout from a kayak is a little different than targeting trout from a big boat. It Actually, the more, more trout fishermen target trout via wade. Um, because I, I'll, and I'll tell you why a lot of trout fishermen feel like, um, you have to be as stealthy Stealthy. as possible. Yeah. And the only way to, to really become the stealth of the fishing world is to, to get in the water yourself and to, um, to wade fish. So what's crazy is, have you ever heard somebody say, um, I'm fishing and I got into some trout? Yes. Yeah, right? Like, I'm fishing, and I got into some trout, and I caught some trout, and I put them on my stringer. That's usually the way it happens, guys. Like, we're out fishing. We're just fishing. You know, we're going to catch something, or we're not. We're going to skunk, whatever. But when you hear that guy say, I got into some trout, he doesn't know why. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know why. And that's happened to me dozens of times. The only time it... It happens, and I know why, is whenever I'm fishing places like the Causeway, right? Yeah. Well, 
and whenever we say we got into some trout, it's usually that 15 to 18, sometimes some 20-inch trout are mixed in there. But in this episode with Clint, we're more talking about, you know, targeting Four bigger five pound trout. trout. Yeah, bigger trout during the summertime. This isn't an episode where if you want to catch 15 to 18 inch fish, you're going to get a whole lot of knowledge. But I'm sure, you know, you can use this to find some of the smaller fish. We're talking about bigger trophy fish that Clint is giving us you know, very specific areas to look at. And he gave so many different examples of stuff that I didn't even think about. Guys, stick around till the end of this episode where he talks about wind and the wind that he likes to fish and how that wind is is hitting the shoreline. It, it really made both of us kind of go, wow, I've never thought about that aspect of the wind in the shoreline. And he's I don't want to give it away this yet, dude's, but, this dude's but wait got till his, the end. This dude's got his shit put together, man. And it almost sounded like he, he had rehearsed this time and time again, time, you know, a, a couple times. But he hasn't because he's mm-hmm. not a regular on any, um, on any shows. He's not, um, you know, a social media guy. He's not out there on Facebook or uh, YouTube or Instagram. He doesn't do how-to videos. Um, this is just knowledge that we pulled straight from his head, man. And and when you have a guy that has it together that well, it should be easy for him. And it was. It was very, very easy for him to, to talk the trout talk. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, don't just listen to the first 30 minutes. Don't just listen to the first 45 minutes. Listen to the entire hour of this show. Actually, I think it ended up being an hour 20. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to the entire show because at towards the end and don't just rush to the end either. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a lot of good information in there and he was, I believe, and this is not to say anything bad about any of the past guests. We're on right, episode right. 43. We have, we've had, we've had awesome, awesome guests. guests. He They're has all different. been yep. the most well-spoken and I think I personally got the most, you know, it, it made me, and I talk about it in the, in the show, it made me critically think about the way I'm approaching uh, fish and the way I'm approaching um, trout fishing. It made me critically think more than any other guest that we've had on this show so far. You know what it made me do? It, it made me go, huh, that's the reason I got into the trout. Yeah, it, it helped kind of put some of the puzzle pieces together. Because I'm thinking of past fishing trips where, you know, I, I've i had my top water just get blown out of the out of the water. And I know when that happens, it's not a redfish because a redfish is not blowing your top water out of the water because a trout is literally like torpedoing from the bottom up to get that top water. And I've talked to you about it, like times where, you know, damn, Drew, my topwater blew like five foot out of the water, which is sort of extreme, I'm sure. But it, you know, that's my exaggeration of the point that my topwater was blown out of the water. And to hear him talk about the way that trout feed and why I was in an area that I, why the area that I was in 
had Trout acting like that started to put some things together and it made sense to me. And, and it ended up being a pregame for our weekend coming up because I think I'm going to go ahead and see if I can apply some of those tactics to uh, the area that we'll be fishing on Saturday. Yeah, and, and guys, this is going to air right after it. Uh, let me just say thank you to everyone who came out to the mini meetup. Um, not sure how many is going to be there because, like I said, we're yeah. <laughs> recording this the Thursday before. But whoever comes out, thank you for coming out to the mini meetup. And, Chris, I think we've set it in stone that we're going to do the Big Bro Staff meetup Veterans Day weekend. Now, the the, the place that we're going to do it is still to be determined. So hop on the Facebook page. Let us know where you want to see that. I'm kind of leaning Goose Island State Park. Chris is kind of iffy no, about I'm, I'm that. No, I'm good with Goose Island State Park because you know what? There's some areas to the north of Goose Island State Park that do not have duck hunters. Yeah. Um, they don't frequent that area, and we can still have a good time and still fish. But the main thing is, is that we meet up, man. The main thing is, is that we get together, we get to hang out, we get to put um, all of our friends together in one spot, all the bro staff together in one spot, and, and do – something other than just listen to a show or produce a show um, and, and meet the people face to face. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, November 11th veterans day weekend. Um, let's do it. Bring it on. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be an awesome time. Um, the bro staff is going strong. The bro staff group is growing strong. The Facebook page is still growing. The, the listenership is growing, so we can tell you guys are sharing this with the people out there, um, sharing it with some of the newbies. This episode, though, is going to help the newbie, the experienced fisherman. We talk about everything from lure selection to bottom color to type of wind to depth of water to the type of bait that you need to look for. Uh, Chris, what else am I missing that we talked about? Um well, I'm not going to uh, give it all away. Clarity of the water. There's so much that we talked about in this episode. And like I said, it, I probably learned more from this episode than I've learned from any other episode. But before we get to Mr. Clint Bargy, Jessica, tell us what is going on with ACK, Real Sportswear, and Abu Garcia. Hey, bro staff, as summer winds down and the kids and you start making back-to-school plans, maybe you're looking to do a little back-to-school shopping for yourself. Maybe upgrade that paddle for a pedal, or if you're feeling fancy, pedal to motorized. Whatever you're looking to upgrade, let my friends over at ACK put you at the head of the class. Browse unique pedal and motorized kayaks by all the major brands, including Hobie, Ocean, Torque, and Native Watercraft's Propel-Powered Kayak. So leave the homework to the kids. The staff at ACK have done all the research to put you in a new kayak today. Guys, this next part's for the ladies. They're up in the morning running to get the kids ready for school, work, dinner, homework, all the things. Maybe she's even your fishing buddy. No matter what she's doing, she's on the move, and she deserves to do it comfortably. 
A Real Sportswear has got her covered. With their handcrafted, UV-resistant, moisture-wicking, super soft leggings. Look, I know you've heard me mention them before. And if you see me out on the water, you know it's all I wear. But what you may not know is they are my go-to when I'm running around and doing everyday mom stuff. So ladies, go to realsportswear.com and don't just get what the guys wear. Wear what moms on the go wear with Real Sportswear leggings. All right, guys, I know you're feeling neglected. So how about we put away the clothes and the back-to-school madness and get back to what we all came here for, fishing to win. Whether it's the Bassmaster Classic or a friendly bet with a friend, Abu Garcia wants you to come out on top. So expand your arsenal with Abu Garcia's new 2021 releases for this fall. Join them as they launch their lightest ever spinning rods and reels, the Xenon. Engineered from the inside out to give you the ultimate in sensitivity and performance, the Xenon line is about to change the name of the game. Find out more and see what's coming at purefishing.com. Then click on the Abu Garcia tab to get all the details and place your order today. That's it for me, guys. As always, I'm Saltside Jess, and I'll see you on the salt side. Well, if I don't have a parent-teacher conference. Hey, Jess, thanks again for all the information. I know our listeners are going to really eat that up. Look, guys, tonight we've got a very special guest from the Texas coast. This guy, we just got finished talking to him about the entire history of the Texas coast whenever it comes to lure makers. And there's an entire wall behind him. We're looking at it right now, and it's like, uh, I want to say that's probably an 18-foot wall, and it's just jam-packed with with everything you can possibly imagine. And he's saying they're all Texas lures. So I'm sure one day he's going to write a book about it uh, if he hasn't already. So, ladies and gentlemen, this guy is a, uh, a redfish master, and he's out there taking everybody's money. Um, but we're not here to talk about redfish today. Okay. Nope. We're going to talk about something that me and Chris we talk, yes. don't know much about at all. <laughs> so when I'm asking these questions, I'm generally intrigued by these questions because I have no freaking clue. They're not even my number one bycatch. They're not even my number one bycatch. Like my number one bycatch flounder. is flounder. Yeah. Yeah. I catch more flounder than trout. So this is going to be That's the best bycatch, very... though. Bycatch. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Take them all. So, so guys, you just heard him right there. That's uh, Clint Bargy. Clint Bargy's j- joining us today, and we're going to talk about that summertime trout bite patterns, where to find them, uh, what kind of lures to use. It's all about the trout bite in summertime right now. So, guys, tune in, uh, turn it up, and let's get going. Drew, I know you've got your dying, you're itching to ask him the question. You, you just. Look, the look on his face, he's just about to bust out of his skin. I'm, re- I'm ready to ask it. So, Clint, what is one of your most memorable fishing memories? Now, this can go back to childhood. Maybe talk about maybe one of your earliest memories that you can think about, and then the one memory or the one fish that just stands out the most. That one time, like that one the story that you tell everybody at happens. every barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, those are some hard ones. There's so many good stories, you know, 
Probably the best story, the one I like to tell the most, and and it's one of my earliest ones, was the first Keeper Red I ever caught. You know, and golly, I had to have been, I don't know, I was younger than my son is now. I had to be maybe 10 years old, and I was fishing off a bulkhead with my dad. And my dad and I always had this history of I'd cast right and he'd cast left, and we'd be, you know, always tangled up in each other's line. Well, anyways, I cast and he had one land, his cork landed right on my cork and they both went down at the same time. He's saying, I got a fish. I got a fi-. I tell him I got a fish. We're going in different ways. Anyways, we think we're tangled up. But finally, when we get the fish to the net, we had each caught the same red fish in the mouth. No way. <laughs> so and that was the first keeper red I had ever caught. And, you know, when I look. Wait, back, wait, wait, wait. Who 20. caught it? You caught it or did he catch it? Well, I mean- just like any good dad, he said, oh, man, I must have hooked your fish. You know, so, uh, anyways, thinking, thinking about how he measured that fish. I don't even know if it really was 20 inches, you know, but I was a young man at the time and, uh, I thought it was a keeper and show he made sure it was a keeper, but I, I love that. Cause I've never seen it done again, as much as I've fished with people, you know, and to share that moment with my dad, it was so awesome, you know, so that does sound like that's awesome definitely story. the most memorable favorite story to tell, but, uh, you know, probably my, my most recognizable catch if you will to alter the question a little bit was not this trout that you see over here but my largest trout that sits in my living room for everybody to see you know which just came right here out of houston texas 30 inch 10 pound trout so we we had fished a tournament all day long we'd skunked all day long but we knew the fish were there and they were going to eat i came home and my wife said you know why don't you go out and just fish you know i was frustrated so i pulled up on my favorite spot at night to fish and about five five casts into the day, evening, I caught a seven-pound trout. And, man, I came back to my kayak, and I took a whole bunch of pictures, and I sent it to my buddies I'd fished the tournament with that day and just said, hey, you know, we just we missed the window. And I, I put all my stuff down in my kayak, my boga, my net, everything, and waited out. I was just going to make a couple more casts and then go home. And, man, first cast out there, I got a bite. And uh, I reeled it in, and it was dark. There was no lights, anything. Couldn't really see well. And fish didn't look much bigger than the one that I had just caught and released. So I went to grab my net. My net wasn't there. It was back in my kayak about 20 yards away. So I walked all the way back to my kayak with just that fish hanging on the line. I had no idea what it was. We all know you're going to lose a 10 pound trout if you can see it. Yeah. Got to my kayak. My net was all tangled up in my water and my boga and everything. So I stuck the rod under my arm while I untangled everything. And then I scooped up that fish and set the rod down, not even paying attention. I mean, when I went to pick up that net, I thought it was hung up on something because I couldn't pick it up. And when I grabbed it with the second hand and picked it up, that fish turned over on its side. And then I realized what I had. And, uh, you know, it was such an anticlimactic situation because the whole time I thought I just had another five or six pound trout. You know, it wasn't until it was all done and I was sitting there looking in the net that I realized what I had. And uh, even though I tried to resuscitate that fish and let her go, she had just bled so much, you know, that... uh she ended up on my wall. But, you know, if you want to do the math, it was 30 inches with 18 inches of girth. You know, that fish sits on my wall for anybody who doesn't believe those numbers, which on the scale says 11.2 based on the measurements. But my bug is right on and it was right at 10. So, so that's probably Drew, the most memorable fish because it's the only one I got on my wall. Drew, did you catch a couple of times there? He said something that's, that's real funny. Um, just another four or five pound trout. 
Yeah, four yeah. or five pounds. Just, a, just another four or five pound trout. <laughs> well, and and the fact that he said like I knew the fish were there, they just weren't biting at the time, so we were grinding it out. That's something we're gonna hit in a little bit because I want to know, you know, how you knew the fish was there, what type of, you know, what 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 type of environment you were fishing for those trout during that time to just say, you know, I I don't think I'm confident enough ever to say i know the fish are there they're just not biting right now I, i'm i'm still to the point where i'm like man i gotta move around the move around gotta find the fish find the fish but i'm used to fishing redfish where we're looking for signs and you know we're looking for wakes and we're looking for things like that so it's going to be a lot different in this trout episode because there's going to be a completely different change i think from the way me and chris usually talking about stalking redfish compared to the way Clint is going to talk about approaching, looking for some of those big trout. But before we get into the trout, Clint, I also got to know, what was your very first kayak, and how did you start kayak fishing? Like, what did you transition from just walking way to kayaking or boat down to kayak? Like, how, how did that all work? Man, that's a good question. You know, I, I think I just was in the right place at the right time. Um, my brother and I each bought Heritage Redfish 14s. Those were our first kayaks. And then we paddled those things until literally they, there was just nothing left in them. You know, but at the time in the early days, I guess it was about 2006. And that was a more popular boat. So um, the story behind it's, it, it was just a coincidental thing. You know, my brother and I, we grew up wade fishing in Port O'Connor. And I actually came here for work and he'd come up on the weekends, you know, and we would just wade like we always did. But we saw the kayaks here in Houston. You know, we hadn't seen them in Port O'Connor yet. And uh, I was shopping at Fishing Tackle Unlimited and a, and a guy who's notorious for selling a lot of people's first kayaks. His name's Ruben Garza. I was just talking to Ruben. He was always so good about sharing information and trying to help people go that were that didn't know how to fish and just catch something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you know, for if you're used to Port O'Connor and stuff like that, if you don't have a kayak, you're just not going to survive here in Galveston. And I can honestly say that the kayak was by far the most influential piece in my fishing development. Um, still to this day, there's no greater tool. You know, I, I do fish a bunch out of boats that that was just kind of out of, out of a necessity to compete. Um, I will still tell every person on every stage at every boat tournament that if they think they've got it in the boat, they have no idea what they're missing in the realm of the kayak as far as not only catching fish and being able to approach fish, but just how well you're going to learn the body of water that you're fishing. You know, the only thing that will teach you about a body of water better than the kayak is to actually get out and wade. You know, knowing you guys are redfish guys and, and myself at the core, there's some redfish in there. Um, you just can't wade everything that we like to paddle. You know, there's some places if you get out, you might not ever get back in. But yeah, uh, Galveston's one of them. Like, oh, absolutely. Most of Galveston. Yeah, any any place off any any intercoastal ditch that we've got or any back of any cove, you know, you're going knee to waist deep in the mud. But, uh, you know, Ruben and I had that conversation at FTU. Like I said, I think it was 2005 or 2006. And, he, he really was the epitome of a salesman, you know, told the story, made me a believer. And, uh, you know, I mean, literally from day one moving on, it was a game changer. I think he sold uh, Scott Knoll his first kayak, too. I, I wouldn't be surprised. That, that's who, who, who sold him that, uh, another one of our guests. And you were talking about the mud and stuff, Chris. 
Um, just a, a little quick tip. If you reach your paddle down and you pick it up and it's got mud on it and you can smell it, don't get out of the kayak. <laughs> do not get out of the kayak if you could smell the mud because that is, that which is not a place that you want to stop which is pretty Dang much man. anywhere from sabine all the way to um west matagorda i mean west galveston there's some there's some uh there's some nice sand flats there there are some sandy areas and i'm sure uh clint's going to tell us about you know some of those areas that you may want to stay uh, away from and some of the areas that you may want to target whenever it comes to trout. Uh, but a lot of, let's face it, a lot of wade fishermen um, aren't targeting redfish. They're they're targeting trout. Um, and some wa- some waders are targeting uh, flounder just because of the areas that you need to get to to target flounder. Um, but and that's primarily Seawolf Park. <laughs> but still um wade fishermen are known to be big trout fishermen um wading the surf whether it's wading the surf wading the shorelines um wading the flats it's it's known that you guys are out there in your boots so uh clint you know there's no guessing that that redfish and trout fishing for redfish and fishing for trout are completely different okay you're, you're targeting different structure, you're targeting different depths, you're targeting, uh, you know, even different seasons, you're going to change up all of your tactics. We, we briefly touched on the fact that the most popular bycatch whenever you're catching, whenever you're targeting redfish is flounder. I've actually seen somebody cast into a school of redfish and pull out a flounder, Micah Semino. Um, <laughs> so we know that they travel together. Now, there have been times in Florida whenever I'm chasing a school of redfish, and if I get a little bit deeper than the redfish, I'll pull out a, a trout. Um, but here in Texas, what are some of the number one things you look for whenever you're going to target trout in the summer? You know, that's a good question, and there's a lot of different ways that I guess you could pursue that question. Um here we go. You hear those guys? They, they found you again. They found us and it will go. Um, really, it's a combination of variables, you know, and that's Sunny Mills, by the way. So for anybody who's listening to this that knows Sunny Mills, I want to see if I can silence this real quick. I Keep muted the, the conversation for the next hour. Awesome. So, but yeah, we need to take this opportunity to hammer Sonny Mills from Pearland, Texas for blowing up the podcast. Coach Sonny, look what you done did, man. <laughs> so anyways, to answer your question about what I look for, right? When it comes to trout fishing, really and truly the largest success, and I think that's why there's such a big separation within the, the just the everyday recreational angler and the what you might consider yourself as a diehard trout angler, is really looking for that combination of high probability features, if you will, aspects. You know, there's there's multiple different things that will lead to a good trout fishery, trout spot, trout pattern, you know, whatever you want to do. And so, like, usually when I go red fishing, for instance, I, I know I want to fish shallow, so I'll just look at the tide and figure out is it going in or is it going out, and I'm going to fish shorelines or my fish out in the middle or my fish in the channel. You know, it's it, red fishing for me is a real 
tide based decision. Whereas for trout, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin on this list when I think about, you know, number one being the presence of bait. You know, there there has got to be a lot of bait there, but there's got to be the right bait. Um, you know, I think about structure. I think about tide. I, I really think a lot about the major and minor feed times. Um, you know, what's the wind doing? What's the water clarity doing? What's the conditions been like for the last couple of days? And so when I think about trout fishing and something Drew said in the beginning about knowing whether or not the fish are there, the more that you can line all of those things up into a straight line, the greater the probability is that you can either pattern numbers of trout or large trout, you know? And so if you just think about the average fisherman who's not doing their homework again, they might just look at tide or they might just look at wind or they might just look at rain um, or water temperature or bottom. But the more that you can combine all those things, especially in the summer, the higher your probability is of, of finding either, you know, what you're looking for, whether it's that one big bite, that five plus pound fish or, you know, that big number of fish. If you're somebody who, you know, wants to fill a stringer or fill a core. So it's July 22nd. You said you got to find the right bait. Yep. What is the right bait to be finding right now? I'm going to say this is, you know, is this beginning of the summer, middle of the summer? What what are we in right now, end of July? Is this 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 is the middle of the summer? Middle of the summer. So middle Not the of the hottest summer. part of the summer, but still. Yeah, middle yep. of the summer. What is the right bait that you want to be out looking for? I mean, are you just talking about size? Or are we talking about mullet, shrimp? Like, what are we what are we looking for? So you know, this time of year when I'm looking redfish, I'm looking for mullet and crabs because crab fed redfish are going to be much heavier than a shrimp fed red. Um, so for trout. There's no doubt it's little mullet and shrimp. You know, you can go into, you know, we, we all live in Galveston, right? So we're all fam familiar with those coves within Galveston. Well, whether it's, you know, Starvation Cove, Dana Cove, Bird Island Cove, it, it, it doesn't matter. They've all full of large jumping mullet. You know, mullet that are too big for what the average guy is going to be going for, which is about a 15 to 20 inch trout. You want to find that schooled up finger mullet, you know, and, and not schooled up finger mullet that are jammed way up in the grass, but, you know, high numbers of finger mullet that are further off of the bank. The shrimp are going to be easy to find because nine times out of 10, there's going to be birds working those, those areas, you know, whether it's seagulls or whether it's terns, um, the shrimp are pretty easy to locate. But the finger mullet, if you're wanting to get the higher end of the trout spectrum, that is really the deal. And being able to look at an area and analyze, is this just a bunch of big horse mullet jumping, you know, or is there a variety of size or is there a good mix of small enough mullet to hold the numbers of fish that's going to allow a kayak angler to stay in one spot and catch what they want to catch. Now you're you know, talking I, about three inch or smaller when you're talking about small mullet, or are we talking about even smaller than that? No, I mean, if you can find smaller, that's good, you know, but it seems like that three to five inch mullet is kind of the deal. You know, especially if you want that random big fish mixed in with them. Um, you find good three to five inch mullet and, and you can even recognize that better by, you know, are they really packed up in tight groups so that they feel safe? You know, are they just kind of spread out periodically? If you can find that right size mullet in big numbers that are in tight, tight wads, those fish are going to find that same thing. And those mullet are behaving that way because they feel safer that way because predatory fish are around them.
and they're not jumping. You you won't if if they're not jumping out of the water, then they're probably you know something is stalking. They are not wanting to make a lot of noise. They're not wanting to cause anything. So if you if you get to a spot where you see a lot of jumping mullet and things like that. It might make you think, oh, man, fish are chasing those mullet. Right. No, those are just mo- mullet doing mullet things. Doing mullet you, doing mullet <laughs> things. Mullet yep. doing yep. mullet things. Like, you, they're, they're not being chased by anything. You'll definitely be able to tell when it's a bigger fish you, chasing those mullet. You can sit there things. and watch mullet, like, move in a pattern and con- just constantly hit a reef and jump out of the water. Like, look at them. They're just, like, doing the same dumb thing over and over again. It's doing mullet things. Mullet, mullet doing, doing mullet, mullet things. <laughs> but you you hit on a um, something that I kind of think of as, as a theory that a lot of uh, really successful fishermen um, key in on, and that that is why target the mullet over like shrimp. Um, in my mind, it's because the larger fish, the larger trout in this case, won't be feeding off of. Um, shrimp they're not really they they'll eat it if they get into a bunch of shrimp sure they're going to eat it but mullet are fatty they've got more fat they know a trout a large trout especially or a large fish knows that the mullet's going to provide that the calories that they need i mean they've done their bro science and and they've hung out with their gym bronies and they know exactly what they're going to get you know, out of their their uh, macros, whenever it comes to eating shrimp versus eating uh, mullet, am Absolutely. I right? Absolutely, and I mean that you you hit the nail on the head, and that changes obviously as we go through the seasons and we lose that quantity of bait. You know, whereas those big giant mullet jumping in say sub fifty five degree water, you know, that's a great sign because that's the conditions to catch big fish. But the shrimp are going to be those you know, 12 to 16 inch trout, you know, overrunning your area, birds working them, tons of fun to catch. And you're right, the older they get and the smarter they get, they get the less they want to kick that tail, you know, and why chase 15 shrimp when you can eat two mullet and be done? You find that those big ones tend to be loners too? Like just not, not you know, I, I, used to, I used to really think that and still, until I started fishing with a couple key individuals. And then what I realized is those big trout, they're, they they do move in a group. They don't feed like small trout feed. Um, but, I mean, all my best nights of big trout fishing, you know, were 10, 15, 20, 30 fish, five pounds and above, you know, and spread out bites. You know, very rarely was it cast after cast after cast like you find in the surf, like you find in the past, like you find in the edges of the coves here, off the edges of sandbars and things like that. You know, it's very flat fishing where you're trying to intercept the big fish. And, um, yeah, I mean, I fished with Phil Spencer two years ago and between he, myself and a gentleman named John Kay, we had probably 20 trout over eight pounds in one night. I, I actually remember that night because Phil was going live a lot yes. during that fishing trip <laughs> yes. and, uh, y'all were catching a lot of really quality, some quality trout, man. I know exactly where y'all were at and I've never tried to go back and duplicate what y'all have done because I am actually terrified of weight fishing, especially at night. So you won't catch me out there. Um, <laughs> although it's a really cool place and I do like it. Um, I think go. we've already mentioned it at least once. Hey, Drew, did you did you notice he also said he mentioned something else that uh, a lot of fishermen will discount um, whenever it comes to looking at your fishing conditions? 
Yeah, looking at, you know, tide, looking at moon, looking at everything. Moon phases. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that I like to look at, okay, because I do believe the same thing that you said, the more you can line up, you know, the more that you can start to stack on top of it, you know, um, all of your conditions, um, you can create the perfect storm in your own mind, at least, um, yep. that, that there's going to be, you know, a great fishing day. Now, you might not end up in the perfect location, but somewhere <laughs> the fish are biting because you've, of course, stacked up the perfect conditions for it. Yep. But, and, and you got to think about it for the listeners of this show that, you know, work, have families, whatever, that might only get one day to fish. Um, you've got to do the homework before that to really try to look at, you know, whatever your four or five or six variables that really make you feel confident about a location um, to make the right decision, you know, because we all know you, 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 we all have our favorite place to go on a south wind or on a north wind or whatever, but that might not be right if the tide's really slow or, or the tide's raging really hard or, you know, there's going to be clouds versus sun. Um, you, you've got to overcome that desire to go fish the stuff that you just like to fish to really go and fish the stuff that's going to align for the day that's in front of you. Now, I'm, I want to double back to that in just a second, but... Before I ask, you know, I want to talk about the major and minor and trout. But before I, I talk about that, middle of the summer, what is like the optimum depth that you want to be in? How deep of water are you trying to target? And let's just narrow it down to big trout. You know, yeah. what yeah. depth of water are you trying to look for for those big trout middle of the summer? So that's that's a good question because it's super easy to answer, right? The ticket to the big trout early in the summer or, or middle of the summer, I don't care. Anytime that that water temperature is, let's say, 80, 80 degrees, above, yeah, is going to be two foot or less. That is in a very close proximity to about five foot. You know, so that's bars, that's edges of coves with geotubes, that's reefs, you know, whatever it may be. Um with the heat of the water, those big trout want to exert as little energy as possible. You know, so if you can find a very nice slope or a flat with a drop off um, or the edge of a geotube, you know, something like that, where that trout can come out of deep water, kick its tail maybe 15 times in that 12 to 20, 24 inch water and then glide back down into the deeper stuff. That is absolutely the deal, you know? And so that's when you start factoring in something like tide as well, you know? So if it's a really, really strong incoming tide, you can't fish that pattern in somewhere like San Luis Pass, you know, those bars behind the pass. Your bait's just going to blow off of there before the the trout can do anything. So you got to move away from the pass and to the edges of the coves and the mid-bay sandbars and the mid-bay humps where those fish can ramp up feed and come down. You know, however, on the flip side of that, when you got a day where the tide's just trickling, just barely moving, you know, that's where you want to fish those edges of the pass where a trout can be sitting down in six, eight, ten foot of water. That's going to be multiple degrees cooler. Look up on that shallow shelf at that right size mullet, come blowing up in there, blow up on that mullet and then turn around and fall back down into that deeper water. I you know, guarantee you I next to deep. I guarantee when you said this is easy and then you said two foot and then goes down to like 
four foot, five foot really close. Everybody that's listening to this show immediately thought of some place that they fish that might be good that has that two down to five really, really quick. And Chris, we're going to the San Luis Pass area. Um, when this comes know, out, I, it, w- it would have been the weekend before. And I bet you just were thinking of some places to fish there in that area that he was just talking about. <laughs> I wasn't, but now that you mentioned it, I was actually thinking of going to one specific place where I have been successful catching trout. And guess what? It happens to be just like that. It's actually a flat with a drain, but then there's like a bowl. Yep. There's like a bowl right there that drops down to like, I don't know, six, seven foot deep. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hit that spot and, and possibly see if I can pick up on that pattern. Um, the only time I ever have to catch trout, though, is in is in Florida. I never have to catch trout here in Texas. <laughs> That's going to change after a night. Yeah. So remember, when, when you're throwing at that, too, it's super important that you're out deep throwing up shallow. You know, it's so missed by the kayak angler to pull their kayak up on that shallow stuff and get out and wade, but throw off of it. You know, we as kayakers have such a huge advantage to be able to anchor up off of it with almost no awareness that we're actually there. We're not going to displace the amount of water that a boat's going to displace, you know, and sitting off of it about two thirds of a cast off of it so that, you know, confidently you're going to get beyond where you're wanting to get bit because you don't want your bait to fall right into where you're expecting to get bit. You know, you want to throw up in 10 inches of water and then work through that two foot. And you'll see, you know, almost in the same depth range every single time is where you're going to get your butts. And I am the world's worst about that because I I don't want to pull out my anchor stick. I don't want to pull out my anchor. So I will pull up in that. In the grass. In that six inches of water in the grass, and I would yeah. just try to chunk it as far as I can into the channel and bring it back through. I'm the world's worst about that, but <laughs> now with he the, likes to get comfortable somewhere where he can pull out a sandwich if he wants I to. I can't, I can't lie about that. But now that you know, Jessica has the uh, Helix Drive on her Radar 135. I got the PA. It's a little easier for me to stay in place in deeper water um, whenever the tide isn't isn't moving too, too much because I have the, the pedal drive and Jessica has the pedal drive now so we can work some of those areas uh, like that a little better with staying in the deeper water and casting into the shallower water. Now, I want to ask one more follow-up on that. You said that they like to kick their tails, you know, 15 feet. And to be in, you know, two foot of water, you know, in some in some warmer water. Fifteen times, fifteen times. Just, well, fifteen, fifteen I times. Think, I think that's just a. Uh, it's not a hard and fast rule that it's fifteen <laughs> well, times. Well, well, not going to work with fourteen kicks, man. I, I know, but I'm saying you got the edge of the channel. Normally, like, how far from that edge of the channel is that optimum bite area? Is it a twenty, thirty feet? I mean, are we thinking forty, fifty feet? No, no, the closer the better. The closer the better. I mean, um, you want those fish to be able to see what they're going to feed on from wherever it is that they're the most comfortable. You know, so in my opinion, that's probably in in really clear water situations, it's probably about 10 feet. You know, so uh, again, I'm going to use our local fishery. You know, I don't don't know how many users are of your listeners are from uh, 
Galveston area. Australia, but, China, uh, everywhere, man. <laughs> everywhere. Dude, we, we really do. Shout out so, to our uh, listeners in Australia. So, you know, the edge of the geotubes in West Bay, you know, when I think down in, in Port O'Connor where I was just the other day, um, you know, the edge of the main channel that runs all through Barroom Bay and everything else, you know, I, I want my, half of my cast to cover that entire strike zone. And then usually the back half of the cast, I just reel in and cast again. You know, so really I'm just working that front half of my cast where there's absolutely no awareness of my presence there. That front half of the cast is working the entire strike zone from the shallowest part of it to the deepest part of it. You know, and way out where I'm fishing so deep, they're they're not going to come up anyways. And, and, you know, that doesn't always apply in five foot of water, but the aggressiveness of the bite combined with how most of us like to fish a faster retrieve you know that magic depth is always two to four feet for anybody throwing a eighth of an ounce jig head to a three quarter of an ounce jig head you know once you get to four foot plus you've really got to slow down your bait to let it get down there which is just a you know trying to work two patterns on one cast is a hard thing so here's here's what i'm really gathering out of this portion of the conversation shallow water adjacent to some deep water and it doesn't matter really what kind of structure whether it be a geotube or what kind of bottom whether it be mud or sand um does it matter if there's shell at this no, point? but I, I will say once the water temperature gets this hot you want a light, a light colored bottom you know so sand or grass is going to be ideal you know you can still catch them over mud so some of the biggest ones I've caught this this time of year has actually been fishing deep water redfish over mud. Um, but for me, this time of year, that light colored bottom, that hard bottom, that's not going to really soak that sun in like the it's mud. It's going to radiate. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's going to allow those fish, when they put their bellies down there by the sand, at least get down one to two degrees. You know, in the fish world, one to two degrees is five to 10 degrees for us. So, um, you know, if they can sit in that, better moving water that's a little bit cooler they'll run up there and eat those mullet and then just dart right back down before their inner body temperature changes and get back into that cool water for those that don't know a trout is actually a form or a species of a weak fish and they're called weak fish for a reason um they're pretty freaking weak <laughs> <laughs> they almost die instantly you put them on a stringer it's like uh, i'm dead yeah. They're the di they're the divas of the game fishing uh inshore game fishing world. I I so, consider them cockroaches of the bay personally. The, hey, come on now. They're not that bad. <laughs> they're not that they're, they're a challenge to keep on the hook. I'll I'll say that. They're they're a little more And I only uh, you know finicky. what I get that I get that from uh Drew and you know I'll go ahead and say it because we've already talked about it numerous times on this podcast and that I get that from fishing places like the Galveston Causeway when there's just you know a billion trout um you know stacked up underneath the causeway and they're everywhere so but they're all 15 to 18 inches long under there so we're talking big trout here and this this vision that clint is putting in my mind of of the shallow shelf that adjacent to a deeper um channel um and and knowing that it's not necessarily structure based as far as what's underneath um, that really counts, but the fact that sand, um, a sandy bottom or light colored bottom will help, um, is is perfect for this weekend. 
because that's exactly what we're going to be. The whole area. It is the the whole whole area. area. Left, it's that way. Right, it's that way. Straight ahead, it's that way. That whole area is nothing but channels and flats. So, so what about? But what about the most important thing? I mean, yeah, structure, location—that's pretty important. Fish being there—that's pretty important. But I mean, lure, lure choice—that is really important here. Because a guy like me, I want to go out, and the first thing I want to do, first thing I want to tie on for a trout is a top water. Yeah. So. You know, for me, lure lure choice of, of every variable with trout for me, and this this always baffles people and they shake their head. Watercolor always comes in last. You know, so so you always hear trout green, and you're not going to catch anything if it's trout green. But that's a that's a fisherman's myth. You know, um, I, I, it's the same with lures, right? You go to the store and you look at all the lures. Some lures catch fish, some lures catch fishermen. You know, it's the exact same thing with watercolor. You know, my lure selection is 100% based on water clarity. Um, so, so, you know, based on where you guys are thinking where you're going to go this weekend, that's your lure selection should be 100% based on how well those fish can see, because the better that they can see, you know, the smaller your bait needs to be, the more translucent it needs to be. Top water still good, but you want a little top water, you know, and you phase in the other direction, meaning the dirtier that the water may be, the louder the bait that you need it to be, the darker you need it to be, the bigger it needs to be for them to have that opportunity to find it. You know, so I don't even talk lures until we get there and we have an opportunity to see what the watercolor is, because to me, watercolor is the number one decision maker for what you're going to throw. Watercolor okay. or water clarity? It could be clarity is probably the better, but, you know, they, they go hand in hand, if you will. You know, your clearer water, you're going to definitely want something that's really natural colored something that's got translucency for sure, something that's got glitter, you know, whereas you get that tea colored water, you know, even though it may be clear, that tannic color, glitter is still there, but you're going to want a more opaque color, you know, something that's not translucent, but something that's more of a solid bodied color. And And muddy, you just go dark. Yeah, muddy, you just go dark. You know, I I still think that one of the best colors out there is just all black, you know, black head, black. black tail, all black, the whole thing. Um, it doesn't throw them off on anything. It just looks like something that's dark. Well, I see these thousands of lures behind you. Give us, give us a few soft plastics for those for those that are listening that want. If you, yeah, some soft plastic what's, recommendations, not what's colors. What's box? Yeah, just just a few types of soft plastics that you're using. Well, so you know, I was always a bass assassin guy. Um, that's definitely gravitated away if you will um any straight tail is going to be a bass assassin and any large wintertime bait is going to be a bass assassin die dapper so you know so we've got a straight tail versus a large paddle tail but i would tell you that all summer long my universal bait is um the little swimming uh jig from down south you know their little three inch minnow I probably got one somewhere sitting around here on a table somewhere, but that is just the most universal bait I have ever found. It is that magic size where they've got lockjaw or whatever. They just can't say no. It's slightly smaller than the little bass assassin that I like to throw, but it is so resilient to multiple fish. You know, that's probably what moved me away from the small bass assassin paddle tail, you know, that were on the conversation with trout 
is you could throw into a school a small trout and go through a bag of bass assassins really quick. You know, Mike Bossy, who came up with these down south lures, I mean, he hit the head just, I mean, he hit it perfect. And, and note, I have no sponsors anymore. I am sponsored by nobody. Once upon a time when I was with Ocean Kayak, we had a long list of sponsors. You know, now I just talk about the stuff that I think works. Um, Mike hit, I mean, he just figured it out perfectly when you look at the durability of the plastic, but the mobility of the tail. You know, what made the Bass Assassin paddle tail the best paddle tail on the market was just how well the tail moved. But the problem was it was not resilient. Boom, they'd come off well, all the yeah, time. time. It I moved mean, Mike's until it was tails, gone. <laughs> yeah. Mike's, Mike's paddle tails, what I love about them is the top of the paddle tail where I'm on my jig head, it wears out before the tail does. You know, and it's the only one I've ever found in that size that's going to give you the tail action that you want, but still have some durability. So that's a that's a solid body, solid tail lure where the Bass Assassin is a laminated um, body and tail. They section them together. So they pour a t body and they pour tail um, separately. Yeah. Um, where I think the down south lure is one solid uh, lure. Now, it's funny you said the the bass assassins we're not talking saltwater assassin here we're talking bass assassin and i know exactly which ones you're talking about because mark trevino i don't know if you know him or not man um, legend legend yes mark mark taught me how to trout fish back in 2000 2001 and you must on, have been drunk during that trip because you don't listen to nothing that <laughs> yeah. he has to say. <laughs> well he taught me how to how to Trout, trout fish on lures. Before that, I was just using, you know, um, shrimp under a popping cork. Well, it wasn't really a popping cork back then. It was just a cork. Um, <laughs> and the first thing he handed me, in fact, I still have the bag that he gave me, was a um, bass assassin, straight tail, um, in blood red. And I, I don't know. Color. Yeah, it's got the black back and the blood red yep. body. And uh, we just caught trout on them all day long. And uh, from then on out, I was like, I'm not going to catch any fish on anything other than this lure. <laughs> and I, I would buy them constantly all the time. Um, but I know exactly the way you feel whenever you're talking about those straight tail bass assassins. Uh, I feel the same way. I think that they're great baits, uh, very resilient. Uh, whenever I started using the, the swim shad, the paddle tails, um, I thought those were the greatest things since sliced bread until I realized that I had went through a whole ba bag or two in a day of fishing. Um, and of course, like you said there, you know, you walk into, I wrote an article once when talking about whenever a fisherman walks into um, a, a tackle store, you're greeted by a thousand different variations of almost the same exact thing. And it's mainly there to catch a fisherman, not necessarily to catch fish. Absolutely. So when I ask you what's, you know, what's in your box, and I love the fact that you, you know, pick out like two or three things that are important. Um, do you, do you top, use top waters at all for trout? I do. You know, I, I was, I've, I have two top waters in my box at all time. You know, I throw a she dog and a skitter walk, which are almost the exact same size. Different and, pitch on those things, though. Yes, the pitch is very different. The, you know, I just always refer to that as volume. You know, I, I want a really loud one when I'm fishing in rough water. 
and I want a really quiet one when I'm fishing in smooth water. Um, so yeah, I usually have, I've got my tackle box that hangs over my shoulder and it's got skitter walks and she dogs in it. And in my pocket, I've always got knotty hooker jig heads and either straight tailed bass assassins or the little burner shads from down South. And that's that was it. Gonna, I was going to be my next question. What, what size jig heads do you like to throw? And do you think, you know, the, I don't want to say the newest thing cause they've been doing it for, I don't know, three, four years now. But the big eye jig heads for trout, do you think those <laughs> the make trout any eyes. difference at all? Yeah, yes. the trout eyes. Do you think that makes any difference as, as far Come as on, trout Drew. fishing is concerned? Wait, before he, before he answers this, what do you think he's going to say? I mean, I have some in the garage, but I don't know how, how much. <laughs> I think that's one of those things where it catches the fishermen more than more than it catches the fish. But, but I mean, fish fish do eat other fish the majority of the time head first. So yeah. I, that's, that's the only thing that gets me like whenever you see a, a, a fish catch, having another fish stuck in its mouth or whatever. And it's a huge fish. It's always, it's always eyes first. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, really, I guess what it boils down to, and it's the only thing we didn't talk about as far as variables is just your own personal confidence. I fish with this guy named Jeremy Waddell. I don't fish with him a bunch, but when I do, I always learn something. And, uh, you know, I was fishing with him 10 feet to my right, and he was catching one fish for every – let me rephrase that. I was catching one fish for every one of his 10 fish. And I had a huge box of corkies at this time, and I I kept switching colors. I kept switching colors, and Jeremy just laughed, and he looked over, and though I can't repeat it verbatim, I will summarize it saying – he said, pick your favorite box out of that color, uh, favorite color out of that box. I don't care what it is and just throw the rest of the box away. He goes, you just have to be confident in what you're throwing. And so I picked a color that didn't look anything like his and started catching them, you know, and it was the first one I threw and I wasn't getting bit. So I pulled it off and I hadn't put it back on. So to answer the question, it's whatever is going to make you feel good. You know, when you let that line out there, you have got to be confident that what you're throwing is going to get bit. I don't know how it is that the fish just have a tendency to align with the guy who's in the, you know, you, you always hear being in the zone, being on fire, whatever it may be. When, when you tie that bait on, if you feel better with eyes on it, you know, throw the one with the eyes. And if you think the eyes are a joke, then to you, they are a joke. You it's know, one it's of the variables, brother. That's, <laughs> that's the, the fishing secret the power of positivity and everything like we can save people thousands of dollars if we just do some kind of course about self-confidence when fishing and everything because you're you're right if you don't think that you're going to catch something on a lure you're probably not going to catch anything on that lure and it could be you know there could be a whole pod of redfish right in front of you a whole school and you're not going to catch one if you are negative when you throw that line out there. It's like it's like a it goes from your soul through your arm, through the reel, <laughs> through the line, all the way down to your lure. It just puts off bad vibes. I'm I'm serious. Look, we've all been there, right? We've all been there where you're looking at your buddy who's right next to you, literally throwing the exact same thing, and he's getting bit every cast, and you're getting bit one out of every. 10 casts and getting a backlash and the tail's coming off and nothing's going right for you. Uh, man, if you're feeling it, they're feeling it and vice versa. That's Drew when he's fishing with his lady. 
She's Hell catching yeah. them all. He's she's catching them all, and he's going, "What the hell am I doing wrong?" Well, no, I'm I'm to the point now where I'm trying not to let that bother me at all. I'm just like, "Yeah, I'm a damn good teacher." Ha! Look at that! Look at that! Then <laughs> right. I get the positive vibes going again, and then I catch one because there there seriously is nothing. There's no worse feeling I think than. When you're catching fish and somebody is right beside you struggling and it may, you know, if it's someone that you have like a friendly back and forth with, that's a different story. You're like, ha, you ain't catching shit. Like we're right here throwing the same lure. And, and, but, but if you're trying to teach somebody something or, you know, they're new to fishing and you're hammering them and they're right beside you throwing the exact same thing. Like that is a hard, like you almost don't want to cast as much because you don't want to bring in another one in front of them while they're while they're sitting there struggling and cussing and everything else and, and they're hey, all pissed off. Drew, I think it was one time whenever you and I were were fishing with another uh, fishing pal of ours and um, he was so pissed off because he wasn't catching anything and we were catching all the fish. He went home early. He said, "Screw this! I'm out of here, man. I'm out of here, man. It's that- just like I'm done." Yeah, I'll just tell you the the worst advice you can give somebody at that time is asking them if they want to reel your fish in. Okay. Uh, yeah, that is not. Do not say that to anybody. No. Oh, hey, hey, buddy, I'm already. I've already hit my limit. You want to put this one on your stringer? Yep. Here, I'll I'll set the hook and you can reel it in. Uh, they they will not be happy about that. Earlier, Clint, I said I wanted to double back to something. You mentioned um, fishing during the majors and the minors. Do you think that affects trout more than any other fish um, in our bay system that, that we are fishing after? Absolutely. You know, and there are guys in all these things that, that we're talking about. I mean, there are guys that I look up to that are so much better at this stuff than I am. And I, and I could spend a whole show talking about the guys I've learned from and that, that know this stuff way better than I do. Um, but I do feel like when it just comes to reaction strikes, it is so much easier to get a redfish or a flounder to just get a reaction strike. You know, when those trout don't want to eat, you know, and if you've never seen it in a clear water situation, almost everybody's seen it in a green light, you know, those trout are out there popping and you throw something in it and they all just vanish when they don't want to eat, they don't want to eat. So I'm a huge believer in the feed times. Um, really what it boils down to is just understanding where, when those fish want to eat within the feed time. Um, and that was something that I didn't really get dialed in until about probably three years ago, four years ago, fishing with Aaron, who's my, my current tournament partner. You know, Aaron is so dialed into the feed times. And he was the one who took it to another level for me saying, you know, are they feeding into the major and the minor are they feeding at the peak of the major and the minor or are they feeding on the back end of it? You know, I always just thought, Oh, well, here comes a feed. And sometimes it was a two hour feed and sometimes it was a 10 minute feed. But if if you really want to look at consistent patterning over two or three days worth of fishing, you know, let's say you go on a road trip and you got three days worth of fishing, you're going to fish Friday and you're going to go home Sunday. Um, Really early in your trip, understanding where they are eating within that feed is crucial, you know, so that, you know, and you can make the decision on where you want to be standing as you come into the major or at the peak of the major or as you come off of it, because that's a two hour window. 
And if you don't know that two hour window really well, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and literally miss huge numbers of fish by a 10 minute gap. You know, so it's so important not just to recognize those times, but to recognize where it is within those times that the fish are the most aggressive. Yeah, when you're when you're trying to get a good pattern on them, uh, looking looking at that now, I love it whenever guys come on here and they actually say that there's validity to, um, you know, the salooner. Just just look at the cows, man. So Scott Knoll, best. <laughs> oh, here we go. Here here we go. go. Let's Where's talk about Scotty the cows. Look, let's Scott, talk about the cows. Come look, on, Scott Knoll, man, one of the most knowledgeable guys I know. Like I hold him at an incredibly high regard even though all he and I ever do is talk smack when we see each other. And I've only fished with him maybe twice, but I still hold everything that he says at a very, very high regard. He used to say all the time, if the cows are eating on the way to the, to your fishery, their fish are done eating by the time you get there. Or uh, if you pass by the Greyhound track off 45 and all the seagulls are sitting in the parking lot, you might as well just go home. You know, he had so many good one liners as far as the feed time goes. But uh, you know, I tell this to all my non-fishing friends when they think I'm, just a smart ass driving down the road saying, Oh, look at the cows. But you know, you never see one field of feeding cows and the other ones are laying down. They're either all up for the next 20 miles. They're all down for the next 20 miles or they're kind of scattered and the fish are doing the same thing. You know, all the fish are feeding, all the fish are not feeding or, you know, it's a middle day, some are feeding, some are not. So, so paying attention to them, paying attention to the birds on the ground versus the birds in the sky, you know, you'll definitely see those birds lift up right before the feed, whether that's, on the front half at the peak or at the back half. I mean, all those little things, like I said in the beginning, you know, wind, tide, bait, current, structure, feed times, water clarity, you know, the more you can put all that stuff together, you know, if you find all seven in the right spot, you're going to hammer them. And if you only find one, cause that's a spot that you like to fish, your chances of hammering them are going to go way down. So it's no secret that the Salooner also has a large effect on our tide. Okay. It's honestly responsible for uh, our tides coming in and going out so a lot of people will put you know tie in the correlation well the salooners just really you know all about tide it's all about water movement so are you um do you think that water movement is very important for trout as well as as uh feeding majors and minors and hold no. on, I'm gonna stop you. I'm gonna stop you because Chris, okay. you didn't let me talk about the, the <laughs> my cows. My bad. My bad. Oh, I, look, okay. We've, we've yeah, the cows. This. Every we've, two episodes or three, we've <laughs> talked about the cows before. Now, Clint, they always I believe, come up. I believe everything that you've said in this episode so far. I'll give you the seagulls. The the seagulls flying around. Uh, the seagulls are predators. They are eating fish. They're eating bugs. They're eating all this. Someone needs to explain to me what cows eating grass. The grass is not going nowhere. The grass is going to be there all the time. It's grass. It's in the field. What does the cows eating grass have to do with predators eating other animals? And I want someone to explain that to me because no one has been able to correlate a cow eating grass to a predator out there hunting. I'll give you, I'll give you. The, the seagulls, but I don't I don't buy the cows eating grass means that the the fish are going to be more active or anything like that because they're freaking cows and the grass isn't moving. Well, right now you're just beating a dead horse. <laughs> I know, I know. 
Oh my gosh. He put uh, you on the spot, see, didn't he? See. No, I'm laughing because my brother's <laughs> called me now three times and all he's done is texted me, dude. So he's it's because I <laughs> muted their group text and who knows what's, what they're saying <laughs> on there right now. Sonny Mills, you started this text that won't stop. Um, you know, that's that natural programming that he, that I feel like humans are just deafened themselves to. You know, everything else on this planet is somewhat oriented by those feed times. I mean, maybe not like the gospel, gospel, but they're all on that rhythm of the earth. You know, now we can get all spiritual if you want to. Um, but there is already talk about the vibes going from your rod through your hand to the to the <laughs> it's something. So. It's something yes. supernatural. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it is it is just another element of predictability. You know, when you think about um, trying to do everything that you can to factor in an opportunity to get a bite. So when when I look at the cows, there's just something about those cows. You know, they like to eat that grass. It just tastes better. You know, when they're coming into the major and the minor, I don't know what else to tell you. You know, it's just a little, it's got a little bit sweeter taste to it at that time. And, and hey, I'm not going to lie. I look at the cows too. I just like giving people shit about that and, because the grass is not going nowhere. It's there. Clint, and I know we've all had these days before where it didn't matter what the major and minor was. The fish were eating all freaking day long. Yes. So it's not always a hard and fast rule, but there are times where you know, you're just going to get a skunk and there are days where you're going to get paid back exponentially with fish all day long to the point to where you're like, I'm still catching fish, but I'm done catching fish. Yeah. Yeah. And and though I haven't had the, you know, I'm not the master of the barometric pressure game yet. That's probably my go to wanting to really try to chart and understand barometric pressure better. But when when I talk to somebody and say, the tide was right. The bait was right. The water clarity was right. I had a wind that was quartering into the shoreline, which that's my favorite wind to fish, you know, and wind something we haven't even talked on yet because that's such the most overlooked element that was coming um, up. Yeah. But then that's when I'll start talking to guys that I feel like are way smarter than I am at this game. And nine times out of 10, they're like, Oh, it's the pressure. You know, I'm like, I, I don't know how much I believe that, but you know, that's, that's the only piece of the puzzle that, you know, might have some, correlation to it and, and what you said where things can be perfect and you not catch them and things you know might not be so perfect and you just hammer them you know whether it's that spike in pressure or that drop in pressure I, I do feel like that's an element to it so we'll circle back to that one that's one of drew's favorite words to say is circle back or uh sayings yeah but um okay so we were talking about water movement how important water movement is for trout um, because I know for sure when I'm fishing the causeway, if I want to go and get me a stringer of tacos, okay, which are going to be 15 to 18 inch trout, I want that water to be moving because it's not necessarily for the trout. It's for the bait yep. because they'll sit behind those pilings and they won't move, but it, they're waiting for that bait to come by so that they can ambush the bait. So how important is it for the trout that don't and Again, another one of my theories is that they learn how to feed a specific way and they hang out in those areas. So these trout, these larger trout, learn to hunt in a way that, of course, has enabled them or allowed them to become very large. Was water movement important for them during their, you know, their time and is it important for them now? In the hotter months, it definitely is. You know, in the colder months, I like to get it really far away from water movement if I can, you know, and into places where those that water temperature can climb. And man, wintertime trout fishing is a whole nother conversation, you know, and it goes way deeper than summertime 
conversation does. We'll there's, have you back in the fall to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, let's look. And there's what guys are you doing in November? I'll make sure I got four or five guys sitting with me when we have that conversation. Um, but but I look at the current like two things. Okay, the the real simple way to look at it is it's like wind for us. You know, when that water's really hot, if it's not moving, go out there and stand in the sun on a day where there's no wind. You know, why are you going to want to play a sport, you know, play around with your kids or whatever when it's super hot? So I don't feel like those fish want to feed when it's just still because it is just hot. You know, they're just sitting there. So, so that's a simple way to look at it when you think about water movement. You, you can take it all the way in the other spectrum saying, you know, when the water's moving a certain way, 90% of the fish that are in that water column are all facing the same direction and doing the same things. So it makes it very predictable for those predator fish to know how their target species is going to behave. And then most importantly, like you said, since, since, you know, I'm, I'm so specific to how the structure behaves, those bigger fish can just sit there and wait for the bait to enter the strike zone. So whether that's behind the column, like you said, at the um, causeway, which man is such a fun place. If you just want to keep your rod bent for hours yeah, or, exactly. you know, whether it's that one big fish sitting down at the bottom of a drop off, just out of those highest levels of current where that water's really compressing and looking up into the strike zone, waiting for something to enter that strike zone so it can race up real quick with that magic 15 kicks, right, Drew? Get that bait and get back down. Um, The the current sets it all up, right? They know those fish are going to be facing into the current. They're going to move through through the strike zone like this. I'm going to sit here out of the current deeper and then move up and eat. So, like I said, simple man's aspect is what do we want to do in the heat of the summer when there's no wind versus when, when you got a nice breeze? You know, go go the opposite end of the spectrum. Really analyze the currents itself and how that positions the bait for those fish to eat. You know, it's there's so many ways we could look at that tide and current. The, the real big thing that I think people miss is you know what to do on an incoming tide versus an outgoing tide, and then what to do with different velocities of tide, because there's there is definitely a magic movement, and you've got to try to get yourself as close to that magic movement zone Too as possible. Fast. Too fast. The tidal, tidal coefficient is too high. Nothing's going to bite. Yep. And you can't keep your bait where it needs to be. You know, those fish don't want to sit there and hunt that stuff. They want water that's moving. You know, that you use wind as an example as a kayaker, right? We don't want to go kayak in no wind, and we don't want to go kayak in 30-mile-an-hour wind. Your best days are going to be about that 10-mile-an-hour zone, you know? And so I, I look at the currents the same ways and how close you're going to be to the pass versus how far you're going to be from the pass and how far into the cove you're going to be versus right there on the edges. And then of course you factor in whether it's going in and whether it's going out. And that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Now, are Clint you just made your... that. Oh, go ahead. Clint just made that sound so much better than I ever have. Um, you know, when we talk about wind, um, Drew, it, it's always like, well, I hate fishing in no wind. Well, I hate fishing in high wind. Yeah, welcome to Texas right there. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Texas. You, you just made it sound so much better. You know, it's like, yeah, guys, the magic number is around 10 miles an hour. That's exactly what we want. Yeah, that's what it's going to be this weekend, too. So I'm I'm excited about that. Clint, yeah, we're you, just pre-gaming here. We are. We're, like, we're, we're starting the good juju. That's what we're doing. We're starting the good juju, starting the good vibes. Clint, you said, you know, there's a certain um, movement in the tide, like that magic number. 
So with that being said, are you following the tide? Um, like if you're starting in the back of the cove and that t- tide starts moving, are you working your way to the front of the cove as time goes on, as that tide really starts moving? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a real good article out there. I'll see if I can find it. It was written by a guy named Steve Sule, who's a fantastic trout angler who's just kind of moved on to just focusing on guiding. But but he wrote a real great story about you know, starting in the back of the cove and working to the front of the cove. So as that tide comes in, those predator fish are going to follow their bait, their food up into the structure, you know, and as that tide moves out, they're going to position themselves as things come out of that structure, you know, and as redfish guys, y'all should understand that beautifully, you know, with fish and everything moving into the grass versus sitting on the edge of the grass as the shrimp and everything comes out of the grass. So you have to recognize that, Um, especially on a fast moving tide day where you got a good two hour feed where you might say, man, we caught them for the first 30 minutes and we didn't catch anything else. But you talk to somebody two coves over and they caught them on the back half of the feed. You know, you have to transition with those fish. So um, my favorite days are real low tides where the tide pushes in because all those fish do is they just climb further and further up onto that structure, you know, further, further into the cove, further, you know, making them a more predictable thing. The outgoing tide can be a lot more challenging because sometimes they'll stay in the shallow water till the last minute, you know, and if it's a hard falling tide, sometimes they'll sit way off the structure. That incoming tide is the deal. At least in the summer, you know, I actually like the end of the incoming tide and the beginning of the outgoing tide in the winter. And if you want to learn all about that, go to one of Jim West seminars and he'll talk to you all about, you know, wintertime fishing and the magic of the end of the incoming tides. Springtime, the same thing? You know, springtime's interesting because of the bait. You know, on, on years that we've got really, really good bait, um, I'll be fishing shallow early. You know, whereas this kind of, this year we had so much bait die in the freeze. You know, there's still not the right amount of bait in, in, the, uh, in the bay that I find myself fishing deeper for trout this year than I usually would. You know, and staying out on the edges of the coves a little bit more. There's a lot of bait out on the edges of the coves. Um, everything that I've seen in the cove has just been big, giant horse mullet. You know, at this time of the year, a trout's just not going to go after, you know, all the finger mullet, all that right size mullet that I'm finding, um, has been closer to the past has been closer on the edges of the coves. You know, that seems to be where it's ganged up right now. That native cove population, it died this year, you know, so everything that's in those spots, that's all new bait. That's all bait that's come in the past this year. Two more things I want to talk about. I know I know we're an hour in. You mentioned the wind. We'll end on winds, but the next thing I want to ask, does salinity levels really matter? Um, for redfish, no. But for trout, absolutely. And it's not that you're not going to get that random trout in freshwater. Um, you know, I've got buddies that are still catching plenty of trout up in Trinity under birds, you know, and clear Lake. Yeah. Clear Lake always clear lakes, the best example. Cause I live two rows off of clear Creek. You know, those are resident fish that never leave. And then I don't think, I think big trout will stick out in the lower salinity water. As long as the bait is still there, you know, going back to the number one thing that I think is the most important of any feature is going to be the presence of the right bait. Those big trout, there. That that's why when you see a fish kill, you see so many big trout. 
you know, is because they just want to sit there and just stick it out and they will fight that water temperature until they literally freeze themselves to death. I feel like it's the same, same thing with salinity, but you know, when you think about the drop in the salinity, you usually see a big movement of the bait. And so as that freshwater influx comes, it moves the shrimp and it moves the bait and that those fish transition with that. So some of it is just the comfort level within the salinity, you know, cause you'll see they'll eat a jig real good in a low salinity water, but they don't want to come up and get a mouthful of a top water. So I think salinity, some of it, but then I think how that freshwater influence moves the bait is a big part as to why you, you know, I just think the fish follow the bait. So if the bait's moving as with that salinity change, the fish are going to go that way too. Earlier you mentioned you had a favorite wind. I I cannot say that I have a favorite wind pattern or wind coming from a certain direction. I'm just like, if it's, you know, seven to 12 miles an hour, I'm like, okay, good. We got seven to 12 miles an hour on the wind. You, you said that was one of the things that's most overlooked by fishermen. So just talk a little bit about wind, um, what your favorite wind is, why that's your favorite for summertime trout fishing, and just kind of school us a little bit on wind. Well, so that's, that, that is a fun conversation to have because, like I said, I think it's so overlooked, you know, and, and to put this out there, by the way, because I know you probably got a lot of redfish guys that listen to this thing and they're just going to say, well, Saturday I'm going redfish and whatever. Who cares what that guy said? Um, redfish and I like a direct wind into the shoreline. The more it can destroy that shoreline, the better, because I'm a huge believer that anything that is in that disturbed water is there to eat. It is not there just to sit and have a field day. You know, so we all know the back of a cove when we're redfishing or the back lake of a marsh that... It's just getting pounded by the waves. That's usually where that big one sits. Um, for trout fishing this time of year, there is a magic wind, whether it's 10 miles an hour or whether it's 30 miles an hour, and it's about a 45-degree quarter into the shoreline. You know, and I think where a lot of people mess up on trout fishing is they like the calmer shorelines. They want the wind at their back to be able to make a long cast. You know, and, and you still want to use the wind at your back to make that long cast, but you want to be on a shoreline that's got a wind that is quartering into the shoreline, not blowing straight into it, not blowing straight off of it, because what that does is it always keeps the water moving in a particular way. So we go back to everything that we talked about, tide and current, you know, wind's going to influence that too. Um, what I like to do is, and then of course, casting at angles, you know, I, I, I think a huge mistake people make is they get the wind at their back and they just throw down wind because they can make a really long cast, but getting a 45 degree cast or even a 90 degree cast into that wind, not just the straight downwind cast is significantly going to increase your bite ratio, you know, but when you've got that wind that's quartering into the shoreline, you know, the fish are kind of tracing down that shoreline and, and that junction of what is too turbulent of water versus that magic zone, because that's where the bait is going to be really disrupted. And the bait is going to be trying to move into that current, move into that quartering wind. So it's just adding an element of predictability to it. Um, you know, so I always look for that wind swept shoreline. You know, it's, it's not going straight down the shoreline. It's not going straight into the shoreline. It's got about a 45 degree angle into it. It's going to allow you to make straight downwind cast, 45 degree cast, 90 degree cast, use that sweeping wind to your advantage. And the fish are going to position so that your bait comes straight across their faces. 
Because, again, if you're fishing into a shoreline that's just getting pounded by the wind, a lot of the times you're throwing a cork or a topwater and you're kind of coming over the top of the fish. That quartering wind is going to allow you to get that presentation where your bait is always going to be coming across the fish's face. You know, and that is going to up your probability of it looking natural, of intercepting a fish, you know, versus just hoping you land on one's head or come right over one's back. Chris, so some you of got the, anything to say for that, man? You, you know what I'm going to say. Um, so many guys that we have on are going to make me start fishing windward shorelines. Chris hates those windblown shorelines. He hates. <laughs> but let me tell you something. He put it in a in a way that I actually haven't heard it um, explained before. Because uh, honestly, I love leeward shorelines because I I'm a redfish nut, right? And I feel like redfish are lazy. And they don't want to fight current. They don't want to fight, uh, you know, windblown shorelines. And I find a lot of fish on leeward shores and slowly, just slowly cruising. Some of my biggest fish have been caught on leeward shores. But I know a lot of successful fishermen, you included, um, that do target the windward shoreline, windblown shoreline. And the way that you put it is really uh, interesting to me because now it, it, signifies or it resembles more of an artificial current than that is just exactly a... what i was thinking the whole time he was saying that well that... It, not only that though you know one thing to factor in is anything that's there is only there to eat you know they're not going to fight that wind and that chop and that artificial current just for the fun of it you know y'all were saying mullet doing mullet things i'm taking that with me from this from this call tonight um <laughs> But, you know, you can get on a leeward shoreline and throw at one fish that doesn't want to eat and throw at the very next one and he's going to crush your bait. You know, and, and we've all seen that, you know, the redfish was there with his back out of the water. He didn't want to touch anything, but the very next one gobbled it up. I feel like there's a mix of fish aggressiveness on the leeward shoreline. When you get on that windblown, destroyed shoreline, what's there is there for one purpose and it is there to eat. And, you know, Scott Knoll, I, I'm pretty sure it's Scott that I that told me this. Um, present your bait in a realistic way, okay? Because there is no animal within the entire universe that just voluntarily commits suicide. <laughs> True. So, so don't don't try and like work your bait against the current. No bait is going to be swimming against the current. Um, when you're casting at a shoreline. Um, Try not to cast perpendicular to the shoreline because, honestly, you're not going to have many fish swimming away from a shoreline. They're going to swim with it, whether it's one direction or the other. They're going to swim with the shoreline. Um, so try to think of what is natural rather than unnatural because the unnatural thing is to commit suicide and no, no animal within this universe is going to do that, except for humans, but we're freaking weird um, <laughs> so that's that's a couple of t pretty good takeaways from that portion there and drew what was your what was your other circle back i didn't have any more circle backs that was it salinity you had another was, one salinity no, the last two things that was the last two things i wanted to talk about salinity i mean I'm, sh yep. I'm sure we we could sit here and talk for another two hours about different conditions. You know, it's it's and, funny. And everything we, else. we still, I mean, we still, everybody just kind of gravitated right into redfish at the end there. 
It just it happens, man. It's, it's in the passion. cold, man. It, yeah. As a kayak angler, I mean, if you don't like to redfish, there's something wrong with you. I, I you know, I think that's kayaking brings people to red fishing. You know, it's that next step for it. If you're a paddler, you're a red fisherman, and sure, there's there's so many good trout fishermen out there. Um, you believe there was a time when redfish were considered junk fish, trash fish? It's when I was young. Yeah. You know, people were like, oh, that is, and honestly, it's one of my favorite fish to eat. In fact, my daughter tonight, I cooked salmon and she goes, dad, when are you going to cook some more redfish? I really miss redfish. And uh, it's been a while, so I might have to bring one home. But yeah, there was a time when redfish were considered just trash. I think it was Paul Prudhomme that turned everybody around on that one. So Chris, we, we've got some trout knowledge here now. Um, but obviously you've already kind of reverted back to redfish. So we're, we're doing the mini bro staff meetup. Um, when this episode airs, we would have done it, you know, the weekend before. What are you going to target man, out I'm there gonna try. at the mini okay. bro staff meetup after this episode, man? Because I so, think I may have been swayed one way or another because we're launching at San Luis Pass Park. So That's our, where we're launching I, this weekend. I've already got a spot in mind because as a, you know, in the past, whenever I've boat fished, there's an area there that I've, I've gone with a few friends to target trout. And so my plan was to actually go to that area and I was going to try and find a couple of diehard nutcases that wanted to follow me there. Um, so <laughs> Seth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'm, I feel like I got to fish with him, um, Friday night so that he doesn't Wampus kayak. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm going to try and target trout. Also, there are a couple baits. I, now, I know we talked about some baits catch fishermen rather than catching fish. I'm a gear nut, and it doesn't matter. You know, I love buying gear. I love buying all kinds of gear. And Berkeley came out with a new jig head called the Snap Jig Head. And it's it was, I think it was designed for the lower Laguna Madre type. Um, areas where they're constantly fishing a little bit deeper water adjacent to deep flats. Um, and that snap jig head is very erratic. Uh, and I think it might do a pretty good job as far as presenting some, some jerk baits in a new and fascinating way. Although I won't be able to see it, but hopefully the trout will see it and they'll bite it. So to answer your question, Drew, I think I'm going to go ahead and target some trout. Man, I'm going to go straight to this trout hole and uh, see what I can't pull up. But it's going to be very hard for me because I do have the fever. So I'm going to be scanning grass lines the whole way there. I know it. And uh, that's going to be the plan, man. I'm going to I'm gonna paddle out on the grass lines and look, 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 look. And then if I don't see anything, then I'm going to try to hit some of those uh, – uh, trout like we were just talking about now Clint before we get off here you mentioned you don't have any sponsors anymore but you know what what's going on with you is there anything you want to talk about You're still guiding uh, guiding tournament trails like w- what's going on with you man so we're at the end of the redfish season uh, we've got two Galveston redfish series left it's been a bad year for us, but we did qualify for the Redfish World Series. So we're, we're just kind of mentally checked out until that gets here. We got a trip to Louisiana in October to do something fun. Um, you know, it's the end of the summer, man. In all honesty, I got two little kids. They're the focus of my life. When I, when I was young, I was traveling all over, tournament fishing all over. 
I got a 12 year old and an eight year old, you know, my goal right now is to be a good parent. So, um, you know, for the rest of the summer, for the next couple of weeks, I just want to spend time with my kids and try to try to get them on the water. You know, anybody that listens to this, whether you got a neighbor or a child or a niece or a nephew, whatever, if you can get a kid on the water, that's probably the best thing that you can do for somebody in today's world. You know, world's a tough place right now. Let's get more people fishing. Um, my brother and I, we run GalvestonKayakFishing.com, probably the, just the greatest search engine name ever. You know, you just search Galveston <laughs> Kayak Fishing, you're going to find us. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're interested in learning, let us know. My, my brother runs artificial only trips. You know, right now my trips are kind of narrowed down since they're so limited. I only accept trips with parents and children. Um, you know, so if you are looking for a little tutorial on artificial or if you've got a young one that you want to get on the water, let us know. Sounds That's fantastic. Great, we're, we're really big on getting the kids involved, getting, you know, uh, new anglers out there. You know, Chris fished with his kids since, you know. Yeah, how- and I used to, I used to, uh, well, since, I mean, my son's first redfish, I think he was five. Um, yeah, it's, uh, he's caught other fish before that, but of course we talk about redfish. Um, but I, I also used to volunteer for the FAA, which was the Future Anglers uh, of America, and that was a pretty big organization for a few years. Um, I wish somebody would bring that back and, and revive that. That would be a good uh, good thing to have. But, um, yeah, getting kids on the water, um, teaching them how to fish, it takes a very special person um, to be able to do that. Uh, and, and if you feel like you can't do that, give Clint a call and uh, – <laughs> Maybe maybe he can teach your kid to fish. Maybe your kid will end up fishing better than you. <laughs> Man, you know, when I was young, that was my, my father was a traveling speaker, and uh, the only time that he was in the in town, we were fishing. You know, so that's how I look at it. That's why I love this sport so much. It all goes back to fishing with my dad and my brother. You know, and so my goal in life is to make sure other people can share that. That's awesome. Well, man, we we really appreciate you coming on the show, dropping that knowledge. I think you've been one of the uh, most well-spoken guys yeah, very eloquent. on this show. Very good. Very, yeah, man. You you had me captivated during this whole show, and I, and I, and I learned a ton. Uh, bro staff, I hope you guys learned a ton from this episode. Before we got off of here real quick, I just want to go ahead and thank our sponsors again. Real Sportswear, Abu Garcia, ACK. Again, this came to you live from the Bait Butler studio. Um, the sponsors, guys, they, they've really been helping us out. We've Brought some stuff to the Bro Staff Meetup. A lot of them are at iCast right now. We hope to have some new stuff to give away to you guys. But Chris, man, I learned a lot during this episode. I, I think I've learned more during this episode or it's brought um, critical thinking. Like I, I, I'm, I'm starting, the more and more we do these episodes and the more and more we talk to guys like Clint, like I, I'm starting to think of my time on the water in a completely yeah, this isn't different a, way. This than isn't I used exactly one hundred percent selfless. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um Chris man, did did you learn a lot? Do do you feel good yeah, about I learned, this episode? Uh, number one that I learned is that Clint's coming back in the fall to talk about winter trout fishing and he's bringing <laughs> three of his best friends with him. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, Vincent Renando, Sam Renando, 
Phil Spencer, the three guys that taught me the most about trout fishing. Those three guys, you got to have them on before this. this well, life Phil, over. Phil has been, he has asked numerous times to be on the show. I think that'll be a perfect time to have him on. Um, yep. Wintertime trout fishing. You know what, Drew? Maybe we need to do it on location. I agree. I agree. We can come <laughs> to you guys for that. We can come to the trout guys for that. There you go. So All right, Clint. Guys, man, it's a lot of fun. I can't thank you enough for letting me get on here with you. Thank you, man. All right, All right we'll bro see, staff. We'll talk to we'll you guys get out later. Of here. Later. Peace. <laughs>